The epistle reading comes from Paul's letter to the Galatians, the third chapter. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ, this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary apply, implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, the righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So on the, this was on the schedule when I created a schedule uh, for, uh, of sermons to talk about the story of the Bible, I put this on the schedule earlier to talk about um, this week, Jesus and the offspring of Abraham. And then we always keep on going back to Genesis chapter 12 through 17. I mean, it's so important. We honestly, could, we could read Genesis 12 through 17 
every service because basically the story of the Bible, the story of human history, in fact, is an unpacking of the promises that God made to Abraham that he was going to reverse the curse through Abraham and his offspring and give Abraham and his offspring the land. So we keep circling back to that. But I wanted to specifically wrap it up by looking at how the end of the Bible deals with these questions of the promises that God made to Abraham that you and your offspring would be used to rescue the world. So another thing, though, that I wanted to deal with is something that a handful of you have asked me about, which is if there was, how should we think about um, the conflict between Israel and Hamas right now? Now, I, I've talked to a lot of you about the conflict between Ukraine and Russia, and a lot of you are concerned about that. But, but you didn't have the same, there wasn't the same sort of like poignancy to your question. Because when we, th- when we think about the relationship between Israel and Hamas, one of the questions that, w- that we grapple with as Christians is, what, what's our role in, how, how are we supposed to think about Israel? Israel is, in, in the Old Testament, God's chosen people. How are we supposed to think about them? And are we obligated as Christians to support Israel because they are God's, somehow God's chosen people? So I wanted to talk about that today. We have three things we have to do today. We have to ask, who is the offspring of Abraham? Second of all, we need to deal with the question, how should we, based upon that, think about the conflict between Israel and Hamas as Christians? And then third, what does any of that have to do with uh, Reformation Day at all? Which is, this is the day that uh, the Protestant churches observe Reformation Day. So those three things. We aren't gonna look at the Psalm today. I know that I've, that was my goal is to look at the Psalm every Sunday. And I've done a fairly good job of that, of, of staying true to that. We're not gonna do it today. Although Psalm 47 is a good one. And if, as we read that, I hope that you all caught that at the end where it says, God reigns over the nations. He sits on his holy throne. And the princes of the peoples, foreign princes, are going to gather together as the people of the God of Abraham. So they are gonna somehow become a part of Abraham's people as well. But I'm gonna blow off Psalm 47 to, to look at uh, Galatians chapter three. Galatians chapter three, if you can turn there in the bulletin or in your Bibles, is a remarkable chapter because Paul's gonna grapple with this question, who is the offspring of Abraham? It's super important because if the promises that God is going to rescue the world come to and through Abraham's offspring, we should know who is Abraham's offspring. It was controversial in Paul's day. It's controversial in our day. In fact, and I don't, you know, the, 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 the talking heads on our news stations don't bring this up because they, by and large, aren't comfortable with a world where religion and politics are actually the same thing. But the conflict between Israel and Hamas goes back to Genesis 12 through 17, and the question, which one of us is the real offspring of Abraham? Because whichever one of us is the offspring of Abraham, this land belongs to us. And Jews have always said, 4,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago in Jesus' day, now Orthodox Jews say, that's us. We can get on Ancestry.com and trace our lineage back to Abraham. We are the offspring of Abraham. This land belongs to us. Muslims believe that the land belongs to them because they are the true offspring of Abraham. And they've got a point, if we're talking about Ancestry.com. Jews, Jews trace their lineage back through Isaac, right? The, the child of promise. But Isaac is actually the secondborn. Abraham has a firstborn child, Ishmael. And in the ancient world, it's always the firstborn who gets the goods. Ishmael is, is, is Abraham's firstborn child. 
and Muslims trace their ancestry back through Ishmael. And so the question is, who's right and who's wrong? Well, the Muslim Jews say, well, read the Old Testament. It says that Isaac is the child of promise. Muslims say, you guys messed up the Old Testament. You went through and doctored it to make it look like it was the Jews who were in charge. But actually, in the original story, it's, it's, it's Ishmael. In fact, on Mount Moriah, it's Ishmael that is taken up there to be sacrificed by Abraham and then delivered by God's grace. It's not, it wasn't Isaac. And so the, the conflict today and, and the conflict that's been going on there since 1947 is about this question. And, and I'm, I'm, not, I'm not trying, I'm not overstating that. That's actually what's at stake. I know that look, if you listen to the news, they're not going to mention that because they can't think in terms of religion being a part of politics, like I said. But that's what's at stake is who does this land belong to? Well, Paul's got a take on that too. Paul's going to jump into the controversy. Paul, is it, you can ask the Paul, Paul, is it the Jews or is it the Muslims? And Paul has a far different take. Paul's got, actually, he's got two answers here, but they build on each other. One is Galatians 3 and verse 16. Will you look at this with me? Now, the promises from Genesis 12 through 17 were made to Abraham and to his offspring, okay? Everybody agrees about that. But it does not say into offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, singular, who is Christ. Now, Paul, he, he makes up some bad grammar here. And I can't remember if I've ever talked to you guys about this before. There's actually, the word offspring is a collective noun in English. We, we don't say offsprings. We, you know, we said, well, you wouldn't say this because it's, kind of it's the kind of thing people would say 100 years ago. But like you would say, look at my offspring, talking about your kids. Um, you wouldn't say, look at my offsprings. You would say, look at my offspring. It's, it's like, you know, hair or sand or um, deer or rice. It's a collective noun. It's a collective noun in English. It's also a collective noun in Hebrew. And by the way, it's also a collective noun in Greek, which is not, the, not what we're concerned with here. But Paul he looks at the Hebrew and he says, he doesn't say offsprings. Well, of course he doesn't, Paul. There's no such thing as the word offsprings. But Paul is monkeying around with the grammar to make a theological point. He's just saying this. He's saying that when God made promises to Abraham and his offspring, he wasn't talking about a whole lot of people who were gonna come from Abraham. He was talking about one person, Christ. So this is Paul's take. It's not the Jews. It's not the Muslims. It's not any group of people. There's one offspring, that's Jesus. Jesus is the offspring of Abraham. Okay, well, what does that mean for us then? Part two to Paul's argument, and honestly, Galatians 3 is so good. We should just sit, we should do, I should do a sermon series just on Galatians 3 sometime. But we're gonna jump around a little bit. Look down at verse 27. What does this mean for us? For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Have you been baptized into Jesus? If you have, then you are inside of Jesus. You are inside of Christ, which means you are inside of the one true Jew, the one true offspring of Abraham. You are inside of him. There is neither Jew nor Greek. This means that the ethnicity that you have biologically, you can trace back where your family came from through 23andMe, that's actually not fundamentally your DNA. There is no Jew or Greek. You are fundamentally in Jesus. There's no Jew or Greek. There's no slave nor free. There's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, if you are inside of Jesus, 
If you are inside of the one true offspring of Abraham, that means that you are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to the promise. So you see Paul's argument here? Paul's got two, two pieces. Of, who's the offspring of Abraham? Answer one, Jesus. Just one person, Jesus. But for those of you who've been baptized into Jesus, that means that you are the offspring of Abraham too. Who's the offspring of Abraham? It's Christ's people. It's you guys. And you are heirs according to the promise. That means that the promises that God made to Abraham, you guys get those promises. You get the land. You get the blessing. You get the reversal of the curse. You get to rule over all things. You are the offspring of Abraham. All right, that's the question. Building on that, who's the offspring of Abraham? If it's us in Jesus Christ, how can we then grapple with the question, how should we think about the conflict between Israel and Hamas? Okay, so first of all, just, uh, uh, Note the bene, there's a pressure from culture to always choose a side. If you can be forced to choose a side, then you can be manipulated into uh, voting for certain people or buying certain products or watching certain movies or li listening to certain types of music. So always be aware if the culture is trying to say, you have to choose, Israel or Hamas. I think that based upon this, if we are the awesome Abraham, there's two things that we can say as Christians. First of all, it's appropriate... It is appropriate for us to feel sympathy for the Palestinians, many of whom lived on that land for a thousand years before the Brits said, now we're gonna uh, put Jews here and you all have to get out. The homes that you live in, the farms that you own, the Jews now own this and they're gonna build settlements there and you just have to leave, you have to go somewhere else. It's appropriate to feel sympathy for Palestinians, some of whom are our brothers and sisters in Christ. There are more Palestinian Christians than there are Israeli Christians. There, there, there are Palestinian Christians. It's easy to say, well, they're all Muslims. They're not all Muslims. Many of them are brothers and sisters in Christ. It's appropriate to feel sympathy for them. You don't have to side against them. It's also appropriate, biblically, to defend Israel against terrorist attacks. It's never right to kill innocent people. It's never right, it, it's, it's never right to rape people. It's never right to murder babies. And to say that that's wrong and that's evil, and that we should participate in helping take steps to stop Hamas, that's an appropriate thing to do. But you don't have to say that, and this is, this is the question that, that those of you who asked me to talk about this, this is what you were asking. Am I obligated to support Israel because they are God's chosen people? And the answer is, the nation of Israel, the current day political entity that's called Israel, is not God's chosen people. They're not the offspring of Abraham. You are. Paul insists upon that. It is those who are in Christ. It's not them. So you should support Israel because they're being attacked. Innocent people are dying. The motives behind the attack are, to some extent, ethnically based. They're racist. So you should support Israel, but not, not because they're the offspring of Abraham. That is you. You are the offspring of Abraham. Now, Side note, and a little bit trying to tempt you to come downstairs afterwards. Does God have a plan to someday save, in mass, ethnic Jews? Yes, Paul talks about in that in Romans chapter 11. Will he save them because they are political Israel? No. They, he will save them in Jesus Christ. That's the only way to become a real offspring of Abraham, is to be baptized into Jesus Christ. So when 
Jews are saved, when Gentiles are saved, when Muslims are saved, it's because they are baptized into Jesus Christ. And that makes them, whether they're ethnically Jewish or not ethnically Jewish, that makes them true members of the offspring of Abraham because they're in Jesus. All right, come downstairs afterwards if you want to talk about that more. If anybody has questions, I grew up, I grew up in dispensationalism, the church that I went to. I grew up being taught and believing for a large portion of my younger life that God has two tracks of salvation that he's working on. For the Gentiles, there's salvation by faith in Jesus. For the Jews, there is ethnic Jewishness in a rebuilt temple someday. I don't believe that anymore because I don't think the Bible teaches that. I think Paul insists that, no, there's only one way of salvation, and that's in Jesus Christ. And all those who are in Jesus Christ are true children of Abraham. If you have questions or pushback, we can talk about that later. If this wasn't a sermon, I would let you raise your hand and ask questions. But that would be entirely inappropriate and make uh, many of those of you who are lifelong Lutherans very uncomfortable if we did that sort of thing. So we'll move on to the third point, which is, what in the world does this have to do with Reformation Sunday? Much every way. There are three things I want to point out and then we'll be done. So first of all, I'll try to, bring, I'll try to tie in what we're talking about with Israel and Hamas into each one of these points. Uh, there's the payment. There's also the promise. And then there's the community. These three things. There's the, Galatians 3 talks about the payment, the promise, and the community. So first of all, the payment. Look back at verses 11 through 14. Paul says this. Now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. You cannot be accepted by God on the basis of anything that you do good. That only happens by faith in Jesus Christ. But the law is not of faith, verse 12. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. If you commit yourself to looking in the mirror and saying, I've done well, I've done good, I've tried to do my best, I've worked hard, kept the commandments, been nice to people, I'm good to go. If that's the path that you want to take, that's the path that you're going to have to live by. You're going to have to make that your modus operandi, that I always am nice to people, that I always do what's right. You can't deviate from that plan. But Christ redeemed us, verse 13, from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Jesus was crucified, hung on a tree, suffered the curse of the law, so that, verse 14, in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. The Torah, Jewish law, the Quran, both of them tap into holiness. If you ever get a chance to read the Quran, those of you who are Christians have read the Torah, much of it is just about personal holiness. Much of it is about truth-telling, worshiping the one and only God, doing right by your neighbors, not being violent, being kind. Look, the problem, though, is that, of course, uh, this is a Reformation Day uh, uh, comment, of course. The problem is, is that you just can't be kind all the time. You, you can't tell the truth all the time. We should tell the truth all the time, but we don't tell the truth all the time. And none of us have. It's just impossible. And so we are under the curse of the law. Our tally book, unless it's, Infinity points, Aaron Miller, and zero points for disobeying. Infinity points, I've always kept the law. Zero points, I've always, uh, I, I break the law. I'm going to be under the curse. Thankfully, the payment has been made by Jesus' Christ, Jesus Christ's blood. He died on the cross for us to take the curse for us. I deserve the curse, but the person that I'm inside of 
has already been cursed, which means that I've already been cursed since I'm inside of Jesus and have already paid the penalty. Since I'm inside of Jesus, he's already paid the penalty for me. That's the first thing. The second thing is the promise, verse 17 through 18. Uh, Verse 17 says, this is what I mean, Paul says, the law, which came 430 years afterward, he means after the promises made to Abraham. Genesis 12, 15 through 17 happen here. Exodus 20 happens 430 years later. The law comes after the promise to Abraham first, then the law given to Moses. The law, which came 430 years after the promise to Abraham, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. Because you have a contract, the contract is made. You can't make a contract later, which makes the first contract not good. All right, that's what he's saying. God made a deal. He made a covenant. Salvation by faith through Abraham's offspring. The law comes 430 years afterward. The law can't be the thing that you base your relationship with God on because it's, it's secondary material. The thing that we base our relationship with God on is the promises that God made to Abraham, which is by faith in his offspring, all the nations will be blessed. For if the inheritance comes by the law, verse 18, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So let me give you an example. Marriage works this way. You make a promise when you get married. That promise is the thing that makes the marriage. After you get married, there's going to be a lot of rules, almost all of them unwritten. It's, it's weird and unfortunate when they get written down. But the rules are, it could be like, I'm gonna watch football on Monday night. That's the deal. It's, you're not written down. It's just a part of the deal. Some of the rules are, I'm gonna be faithful to you. You're gonna be faithful to me. Some of the rules are, you cook, I'll do the dishes. A lot of this stuff is unwritten. When somebody breaks the rules, when somebody says, no, I'm watching, I I don't know, what do people watch on Netflix? I'm watching something on Netflix and you don't get to watch football tonight. When a rule gets broken like that, is the marriage null? No. If somebody says, hey, I'll let you watch football at my house. We're married now, right? You would say, no, that's not the way that works. The promise is what makes it. The rule breaking or rule keeping can't, can't, can't know or enhance the promise. And that's all that God is saying is, I made promises to you. God, your, look, your relationship with God is not based on your behavior. I, I, I say this, and I, I, I always think this is like, this is, so, this is so basic Christianity. God promised you because of his son Jesus that you belong to him outside of anything that you do or don't do. And yet, I talked to a guy, this is four or five years ago, on his deathbed who said to me, well, I just, and he'd he'd been a member of two churches that I'd been a pastor of. And he said to me, I hope that I've done enough good things that God will accept me. Whoa, what's going on here? This is so basic. You can't do enough good things for God to accept you. You can't do enough bad things for God to reject you because it's based on his promise to you. I promise I will be faithful to you forever and ever if, you're, if you've been baptized into my son, Jesus Christ. And that's about as uh, a hardcore Reformation sermon as I can give you right there. Look, if you are gonna commit to the offspring of Abraham is the Jews, you've gotta live by Torah. And if you can't, you're screwed. If you're gonna commit to, notice the Muslims, you've gotta live by Koran. And if you can't, you're toast. 
If you're going to be like, no, the American dream is the way that I'm going to look myself in the mirror and say, I'm all right, then you're going to have to make a consistently more amount of money every year. You're going to have to like get enough career advancement. Your retirement villa is going to have to be nice enough. You're going to have to have, you can't have the generic set of golf clubs. You better get the, 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 uh, the, the pro-fitted Titleist irons. Or else you're going to look at yourself in the mirror and you're going to say, I didn't do good enough. There's something more I could have done. I have not achieved what the guy living down the cul-de-sac has achieved. But if your path to saying to yourself, I'm okay, I'm all right, I'm good to go, is my God loves me for the sake of my Savior, Jesus Christ. Nothing can change that because that's based not upon a Torah or a Koran or a cultural code saying, come on, produce more. You got to do better. It's, it's God saying, I will produce. I will do better. I will rescue you. All right, third thing, and then we'll be done. The community, verse 28. And I, I quote this. This is like, if I don't quote this once a month to you guys, I'm ashamed of myself. Paul says, if, as many of you have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ, verse 28, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Look, if you try to come up with a different means of justification, one of the goals is going to be, in your attempt, is to create a group that you belong to who have achieved this. I am upper middle class. I am a faithful, keeping the five pillars Muslim. I am an Orthodox Jew. I am a good person. Whatever it is, you're gonna create a group where you can say, I belong in this group and the rest of you aren't in here. In Jesus though, there's no groups. There's no like, well, men are better than women, and so I'm a man, and that makes No, there's no male or female. There's no slave or free. There's no amount of money that you can make that will allow you to say, I'm here, and those poor lackeys are down there, and so I'm, I feel like I'm doing it. There's no slave or free. There's no Jew or Greek. There's no ethnic identity that you can say, I'm here. I've got this. I'm better than so-and-so. Because in Jesus Christ, there's just one big community. See, see, Christianity is super exclusive, right? I am the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus says. That's a narrow gate. That's tough for a lot of people to get in there because there's a lie that that is so exclusive that it just keeps all kinds of people out. And what we should do is we should say, it doesn't matter. We just make it as inclusive as possible. But in that world, there's the haves and the have-nots. There's the strong and there's the weak. There's the people that have made it and the people that haven't made it. There's the white people and the people of color. In that world, there's a gazillion types of groups. You see this played out in office politics, right? There's always the groups that are kind of shifting. If you can stomach Jesus' exclusive claims to be the one true way, you will find it opens up this portal where everybody inclusively belongs. All right, now, for those of you who are at the high school on Friday, I apologize. I'm going to do the same illustration. Uh, atheism. Atheism. Is atheism exclusive or inclusive? All right. Atheism is incredibly exclusive. And I'll tell you why. This is a question I asked the, the, uh, the high schoolers. Um, have you ever met a dumb atheist? Have you ever met a dumb atheist? I have never met a dumb atheist. And I, I mean that honestly. They are all intelligent and articulate. T tons of conversations at school with atheist kids. 
They're, they're articulate. They're intelligent. They've thought out their reasons based upon their uh, materialist presuppositions. They've thought out their reasons and they've arrived at these conclusions that they are very good of art, at articulating. All right. Have you ever met an unintelligent Christian? Is it no? Yes. <laughs> of course you have. You're looking at me. Right? There's lots of Christians who are unintelligent. See, here's the thing about atheism is you have to be smart. Part of the deal of being an atheist is it's the smarter than everybody else club. And if you know any atheists, and I know atheists, that's a part of the deal. It's like, I figured this out, and the rest of you superstitious people who are like singing these hymns and praying to the invisible sky daddy, you guys are all like a little bit short upstairs. Atheism, you have to be smart. But look, I know people, so my, my grandmother, right? My, my grandmother wasn't, in, like, she wasn't a member of the intelligentsia. She didn't read Francis Schaeffer or C.S. Lewis or Dorothy Sayers. She just loved Jesus. She loved Jesus. I know lots of people who are, they're not, they're not really thinkers. They don't read, you know, they don't read deep Christian philosophy books. They're not very emo emotive either. They don't come to church like, and like pour out their heart before God. They're just people who like, I just do. Like, give me a task. I do, I'm gonna go to work, I'm gonna provide for my family. Deeply committed to Jesus. Here's the thing about Christianity. Christianity is big enough to have smart people in it. It's big enough to have dumb people in it. It's big enough to have people who feel passion and emotion in it. People who don't feel emotions hardly at all. It's big enough to have people who do things and hard charge and get stuff done. It's big enough to have people who kind of sit back and follow. Christianity is inclusive just because it is exclusive. But the only way to get there is to Jesus Christ. See, Jesus doesn't say there are any groups. He says you all are in the same group. There's no Israel's the right answer. There's no Hamas is the right answer. There's no the Lutherans are the right answer either. There's only Jesus and if you are in him, you are Abraham's offspring. You've been redeemed. You are heirs of the entire universe. You are children of the curse reversal. God promises to save you in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, thank you for this promise. Thank you for the salvation that you provided us by faith in your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for baptizing us into him. Those of us who have been, those of us who haven't, God, draw them, draw us closer to you closer to this realization that you are the one sovereign Lord who makes all things new and is fulfilling his promise to be in relationship with us forever. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Okay.